if you're going to go disrupt an industry, don't do it from a place of arrogance. Do it from a place of knowledge, learning the industry, and then in some ways, cooperation. There's a famous Gandhi quote, which is talking about the British in the 1930s. And they said, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win. From Comcast, NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, the head of Lift Labs, and today's special guest is Chip Connolly, who recently joined me for a Live at Lift event that I wanted to share with you. Chip began his career as a hotel entrepreneur, when at age 26, he founded some of the first and most beautiful boutique hotels in the industry. He sold his business at 52 and was recruited to Airbnb to serve as its head of global hospitality and strategy, while also mentoring their CEO, Brian Chesky. His experience led him to open the Modern Elder Academy in Baja, Mexico, offering a roadmap for entrepreneurs and others to make the most of midlife and beyond. For this episode, Chip will share insights on how entrepreneurs can stand out in today's ultra-competitive landscape, future trends in travel and hospitality, and discuss the daily practices he says have made the biggest impact on his life. All that and more with Chip Connolly, now on Ideas Elevated. You know, your, your story arc in terms of your career, you launched your own boutique hotel brand at 26. Give us a snapshot about getting Joie de Vivre off the ground, opening, designing, and running, you know, your startup of hotels. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was a couple, two and a half years out of Stanford Business School, and I was restless working for a commercial real estate developer. I'd worked for Morgan Stanley in New York in their real estate division. I just realized I wanted to do my own thing, though. And the part of the real estate, commercial real estate business that looked most interesting to me in the mid-1980s was not just hospitality, but boutique hotels. So I decided, okay, I have a little bit of commercial real estate background. Why don't I apply it uh, to this rising tide of the boutique hotel business? Bought a motel in the inner city of San Francisco, renamed it the Phoenix, as if the mythological bird uh, rising from its own ashes. And that was the first of 52 boutique hotels that we created, all of them in California. And we became the second largest boutique hotelier in the U.S. Uh, it was Joie de Vivre being the company name, but every single one of the 52 hotels had a different name and different personality. Just fantastic. And just a beautiful brands that you, that you built. It was in 2008 that I first heard about a little startup called Airbnb. Futurist Rachel Botsman was talking <laughs> at a conference. I was yes. actually sitting, yes. at a con- sitting at a table with the sales teams from very, very large hotel chains. I said to them, did you just catch that startup called Airbnb, totally about to disrupt the hotel industry? And they were like, yeah, yeah, they totally brushed it off. <laughs> and well, you know how that story ends. As a hotelier, did you ever, ever think that a startup like Airbnb <laughs> could disrupt the the hotel industry as we know it, getting, you know, complete strangers to rent rooms from one another. Yeah, it was a really interesting thing. So I sold Joie de Vivre in 2010. I had a couple years off. I wrote a book called Emotional Equations and started a, a new company called Fest 300 that was dedicated to having an annual list of the 300 best festivals in the world. But This Airbnb thing, I had heard about it. I was based in San Francisco. Their headquarters was 12 blocks from my home. 
But I just thought it was sort of a silly idea. I thought it was like, okay, couch surfing, maybe a little bit a step above that. And then out of the blue, I got this call from Brian Chesky. And he said, how would you like to help me and my co-founders democratize hospitality? And I, yeah, I liked, the, I liked his opening line. <laughs> Love it. Democratizing hospitality sounded interesting. But I, we met, and in meeting, I, what I started to realize is that in many ways, boutique hotels had started the trend of more experiential travel. You know, you stay in a boutique hotel, it may not be the right one for you. You may hate it because it's got a certain niche identity and personality. And so in, in essence, there was a more of a standard deviation of love and hate when it came to a boutique hotel. And Airbnb just took that standard deviation much further in the sense that it, you know, a, a particular listing of where you're staying on Airbnb may be your favorite place in the world or, or your least favorite. And the, the localized flavor of Airbnb that I could see the history of boutique hotels um, on that was, was showing that. Secondly, Craigslist and VRBO had started in 1995, and they had been around 13 years before Airbnb came along. And so their platforms were not the same. So, so there was some evidence that there was the potential for this to be big. I joined in early 2013. At that point, the company was 140th the size it is today. So it was a, it was a small little tech company. And uh, my role was to just help the founders look at the travel industry and the hospitality industry with whom they were disrupting to understand the landscape a little bit more. But what I learned from them was I, they learned a little emotional intelligence from me and I learned a little digital intelligence from them. And I think that was why the relationship for eight years now has been such a, a powerful one. Yeah, I mean, you're certainly known as one of the key ingredients that helped, you know, Airbnb's founders turn that fast-growing YC tech startup into really a global hospitality brand. Why was hospitality so important to Brian and and Airbnb's success, in your opinion? You know, I think if you're going to be a disruptor, especially in the hospitality industry, you better understand the industry you're disrupting, and you better do it with a certain hospitality flair. One of the things that was going on when I joined was whenever you heard about Airbnb, you heard about Uber in the same sentence. And Uber was had a, had a really fascinating business model as well, but very different energy and, and sort of culture, uh, much more sort of, you know, go, let's go out and like more, very warlike. And Airbnb had a little bit more of an idealism built into it, belong anywhere. And so one of the things I just said is like, we better actually go out and make friends in the hospitality business and I can help us do that. So we actually had the CEO... This has just only recently been reported. We never we kept it under wraps for, for a long time. We had the CEOs of Marriott, Hilton, Hyatt, Starwood, all come to San Francisco with a contingent of their senior executives in 2013 through 2014 to learn about Airbnb. Now, this is before they were even really threatened by us very much. It was more as a, as a welcome mat to say, hey, we, we believe that home sharing is a big long-term trend. Yes, we're your competitor, but we also want to cooperate with you and learn from each other. And so, you know, while there has been, you know, for years now, a lot of competition and some of the industry associations representing hoteliers have been, you know, really anti-Airbnb, generally speaking, the senior leaders for these hotel companies have been a lot more friendly. And some of these hotel companies have now created their own home sharing company. So my point of view was, if you're going to go disrupt an industry, don't do it from a place of arrogance. Do it from a place of knowledge, learning the industry, and then in some ways, cooperation. So uh, that has helped us. But, you know, it's been a fascinating journey 
because there's a famous Gandhi quote, which is talking about the British in the 1930s when, it, when the British still sort of controlled India. And they said, first they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they fight you, then you win. <laughs> and that was sort of the arc of journey for our relationship with hoteliers and travel agents and corporate travel managers and convention meeting planners and you know, local landlords, et cetera. Why yeah. do you think Airbnb's IPO is so successful? And, and what are your thoughts on the business um, post-pandemic? So I think there's a few things. Number one is resilience. You know, there's, there's really no travel brand global that has had such a comeback as Airbnb did this year. So the resilience of the marketplace and the platform, that's number one. Number two is loyalty. You know, 91% of Airbnb's business comes from direct and organic search, not from paid search. For Booking.com and for Expedia, it's 50 cents. So they're spending a lot more money on marketing than Airbnb has to because there's a deep sense of loyalty. Thirdly, the brand. I would say you can make an argument that Airbnb is now the strongest brand in the travel industry. And that's a fascinating thing because you, you, know, you don't see people walking down the street with a Hilton logo on their T-shirt just you know, because they're like Hilton fanatics. But you do see that weird Airbnb logo popping up on people's hats and T-shirts partly because there is a sense that the brand has some value. I actually think what that may mean is that the brand can expand beyond just travel. Just like Apple, it was 2007 when Apple, uh, Steve Jobs went on stage and said, here's the iPhone. And then he blew up the Apple computer's name, meaning computer went away and Apple was no longer a computer company. And I think there may be a time in the future where Airbnb will not just be a travel company. And I think there's a lot of opportunities for it to become a, a lifestyle curator in certain ways. And then the last thing I would say is community. Airbnb has built a community and that community has actually helped to build the share price of Airbnb because a lot of the people who wanted to buy shares are guests and hosts and, and people who believe in the brand. Now, is it going to stay at the price? It actually has made a, a comeback in the last two days. So the valuation, it, went, it was a $100 billion valuation, went down to about 75-ish billion, and now it's back up again. And my opinion is it will probably go down over time because I, I actually think there's a, there's a lot of hoopla right now. But I actually think there's a lot of validity to a brand that actually can be this resilient, a travel brand, this resilient in this time. And I have a lot of belief in Brian. Let's just say that also. He's a, he's a, I've been with him for eight years now. I've been mentoring him by his side. And, um, you know, I think that it's a great opportunity to say intergenerational collaboration, me, a boomer, him, a millennial can work together to create something great together. That's so well said. And I, I really did find Brian seemed very authentically humble when on NASDAQ uh, the other day and your younger Airbnb colleagues called you quote, the modern elder. Uh, what was it yes. like to work, uh, you know, in your 50s at a startup? How did that make you feel? Explain what it means to you now. Sure. So I was 52 when I joined. The average age in the company was 26. I was the mentor of Brian, but he was also my boss, and he's 21 years younger than me. Um, and so all of that meant for, uh, you know, something that I wasn't used to. They started calling me the modern elder because what they said is you're as curious as you are wise. A traditional, a traditional elder might be just wise and they dispense wisdom. But you are as much a wisdom seeker as you are a wisdom keeper, Chip. And so we consider you, you know, a, a modern elder. 
And I think what it was what was relevant there is the word relevance. You know, in the past, we thought of our elders as reverence. You had to revere your elders. And today it's about relevant. And so I did have to ask a lot of questions. I had to be open to learning a lot. And that's why most of my relationships, I had over 100 employees that I mentored, uh, including Brian. But the relationships were often a mutual mentorship. I was learning as much from them as they were learning from me. Yeah, completely got that. Do you see a wisdom gap in the startup world? And should startups hire more elders, in your opinion? First of all, wisdom can be correlated to age, but doesn't have to be. Meaning, we know people 75 years old who are just cranky and not wise. (laughs) There, There are a lot of people who fit that profile. So just because you're old doesn't necessarily mean you've cultivated and harvested your wisdom. But what it, one of the ingredients that makes wisdom happen is experience and pattern recognition. Being through something before and recognizing the pattern almost intuitively and saying, I can see how this movie's going to end, based whether it's a relationship with somebody you're working with or it's a new business idea or whatever. And that kind of intuition that gets built over time often is built on mistakes you've made along the way. So it does help from a wisdom perspective to have some age attached to it as long as you're cultivating it. So what I would just say is that I, that diversity is important in any startup. Now, diversity can be age, it could be race, it could be gender, it could be sexual orientation, it could be uh, you know, physical ability, uh, dis- disabled or not. Um, the problem with a lot of startups is they think about the most obvious diversity, which is you know, the ones that we tend to think about most are race and gender, and you don't think about age so much. And partly because like the, I don't want to I don't want to bring in my parent. My, I don't want my mom or my dad working in the company. And just know that a mentor isn't your parent. You know, if, if, a, if a mentor is acting like a parent, then they're probably not a very good mentor for you. A mentor is someone who is a permissionary. They are a confidant because they give you confidence. They don't create rules for you all the time, which is what your parents may have done. So I would say that Yes, there's a value. One of the values of age diversity on a team is there's cognitive diversity that comes with it. A young brain is focused, and that's exceptional. An older brain tends to be more systemic and holistic in its thinking. It connects the dots. So what does that mean? It means that a young brain, Brian and I, this happened all the time. Brian said, how can you see the future so well? And I say, I have this intuition of what I'm seeing, and it helps me to see the future. Whereas Brian would be like, focus, focus, focus in terms of things. Now, what I will also say is the opposite of that, which is that Brian had a tendency to get scattered a lot. And Brian's an amazing CEO. Let's start by saying that. I wouldn't have joined the company eight years ago if I didn't think he had tons of potential and he was really good at that time uh, as well. But I think that one of the things he had a tendency to do was get, get caught up in the shiny, shiny new object perspective as a young founder. And so part of what I had to do is not just be overall thinking holistically and connecting the dots systemically, but I also had to help create an editing function for what we were not going to do. Because Steve Jobs famously said for Apple, you know, one of the most important decisions a, a leader makes is, uh, is what to say no to. And I think you know, we had 23 strategic initiatives when I joined. I'm sorry, we had 30. We had 23 prepared for the next year, 2014. And I took the leadership team and, and founders off-site to New York for four days. And we said, there's only going to be four initiatives for next year. And we're going to get it down to that so that every single person in the company can recite the four key initiatives. And that was our process to starting to get to be a serious company that actually could focus on high quality of what we did. That's great. 
So you are right now in Baja, Mexico. I'm so yes. jealous. Um, you Sorry. actually started Modern Elder Academy, the world's first, quote, midlife wisdom school. It's a three-acre oceanfront campus in Baja, which I am absolutely planning to visit in uh, early next year when COVID is behind us. For those who are listening who don't know what they're missing out on, explain what MEA is and what are people hoping to get out of the programs there? And you, you have had to pivot this year you know, because of COVID. So maybe talk about that as well. Yeah. So, so long story short is I... When I was finishing my four years of full-time work at Airbnb, I came to the conclusion I wanted to write a new book. So I've written, this is my fifth book, it's called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, as you mentioned earlier. And while I was writing the book down here in Baja, where I had a second home here on the beach, I lived in San Francisco most of the time at that time, I had this epiphany one day when I went for a run on the beach. Why is it that we have no schools or tools for people in midlife to reimagine what they want to do next? And... When I think of midlife I, now, I think of midlife as 35 to 75. Back then, I thought, okay, midlife is 45 to 65. But there's more and more evidence that people are often in certain industries feeling irrelevant and obsolescent in their mid-30s. So you're sort of in midlife. And people are living longer and working longer. So it's not 65, it's 75. So it's a really long swath of time in your life. And yet we don't really give people a whole lot of instruction or any kind of like work, you know, playbook to say, here's how you live through 40 years of the main part of your adulthood. And so that's when the idea of MEA came along, the Modern Elder Academy. We started it three years ago, and we've had now 800 people from 24 countries go through the program. It's a one-week or two-week program down here um, on the campus in Southern Baja. In mid-March, we had to close. I mean, we just, you know, the COVID came along. We were going to reopen in the fall, but then two months, and we had a bunch of people already said that, but two months in advance, in mid-August, we said, you know what? doesn't feel right. So what we shifted to is something called sabbatical sessions. So it's a classic, you know, it's, it's, I was talking about Airbnb being resilient. Well, we had to be resilient here at MEA in order to move to something called sabbatical sessions, which was longer stays. You know, on average, people stay three weeks, minimum of two weeks. On average, they stay three to four weeks lighter programming, but we do have programming. Everything is done outdoors because we can do that in this weather. So we don't do classes indoors and it gives them the space to actually reflect on what they want to do next, et cetera, because, you know, 2020 has been a year for reflection. And because we do have some programming, it helps people to sort of say, okay, wow, I do want to imagine, you know, how do I cultivate my wisdom or my mastery and rethink where I want to actually apply it next. So it's been hugely successful, <laughs> surprisingly, that, you know, we, that we've done that. And we also created uh, MEA Online, uh, which is an online program where people can actually learn the, learn the key curriculum in the program. But it's in small cohorts of eight people and in dyads. It's an eight-week course that we just finished the beta of that. And we also have a, in escrow a property in the U.S. for our first U.S. location of MEA. So that's happening so it's been a fascinating journey. I have loved it, and I feel more like a social entrepreneur at this time. I've been a for-profit entrepreneur at Joie de Vivre. I've been a for-profit entrepreneur, you know, alongside the founders of Airbnb. Although that, you know, both of those ventures were had a social element as well. But this one, I don't earn any income. I've built the campus, you know, myself. I don't pay myself any rent, and I just am very committed to the idea of helping people navigate this new map of life. Um, your life is not over at 45. And yet the low point for a lot of people in adulthood is around 45 to 50 years old. And I, I want to try to help solve for that. So that's what we're doing. 
In fact, you're just getting started. Yes. What are two daily rituals that you practice that have made the biggest impact on your your own clarity of what's next? I'm going to give you a daily one and then also a weekly one because the weekly one I think about daily. Um, the daily one is every morning, and I, I try to get in a minimum of five minutes, preferably 20 minutes, with a meditation. So that's so, so that's the daily practice. The weekly practice I've been doing since age 28, and i got to tell you, I think it's the number one way I accelerated my, my wisdom. So at age 28, so I started my company at 26. Age 28, we had the San Francisco earthquake. And it was a bad earthquake. And, and frankly, the city was shut down for months. And we had almost no business in our, at my one hotel at that point. So I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And so I had a journal that someone had given me. And I, I wrote on the cover my wisdom book. And I decided once a week, I would sit down with my wisdom book, usually on the weekend, and I would not not journal, not like sort of to say, okay, here's a bunch of thoughts. No, it's more like, here are the bullet points of what I learned this week. Here are the bullet parts of what I learned. And in so in, in the process of actually articulating those and putting them in the book, I metabolized my process of learning that faster. And I now have nine wisdom books, nine journals over the course of the last 32 years. And sometimes when I'm going through a tough time like the Great Recession, I went back to my, my journals my, or my wisdom books from the 911.com bus. So just sort of say, what did I learn back then that I could apply now? So if you want to accelerate your wisdom, consider just actually making regular – it doesn't have to be – it could be daily, but you, I do it weekly – daily entries into your wisdom book. Wonderful tips. Thank you. You are an advisor to several startups um, in the travel space in particular. That's your sweet spot. I'm sure there's others as well. But what are some of the companies that you're advising now? How did you select them? What do you look for in the company or the founder? So I love the process of meeting somebody younger than me who has great capacity and not a lot of resources. So the last thing I want to do is go talk, be helpful to someone who already has venture capital dollars and a bunch of other things who is in a field I don't know. So like, I don't think I'm going to be helpful. I, I know that, frankly, the best leaders are substantially well, – they're, they're better than average at emotional intelligence. Uh, you know, they Not necessarily early in their career, but they get better at that. So I could go into an industry I don't know, but I particularly like industries that I do know because I actually can help create – a conversation about the landscape of what they're going out and disrupting. So one company that I have been interested in and been involved with for over two years, I was intrigued by the field, by the by the this burgeoning new wave of co-living. So co-living, if you don't know much about it, is people choosing to live often in small living accommodations, but they have a lot of communal spaces. So sometimes a co-living situation could be 10 people living in a six-bedroom home you know, and going to college together. That could be a form of co-living. But the companies that have taken this and made it commercial are creating 600-bedroom, you know, communities with lots of public spaces and lots of, you know, sort of amenities, you know, a fitness club in-house. It's, you know, part of your price, your monthly price is the fitness club, the internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a company called The Collective based in London. And I was really fascinated because I thought the CEO, Reza Merchant, Felt a lot like Brian when I first met him. And so for over two years now, I have been the in-house mentor for them. I'm not working full-time or even part-time. I'm an investor and I, 
but I spent a lot of time with them. So um, that's one example. A- another example is a-, a company, AutoCamp. So AutoCamp is a company that um, has basically created a contract with Airstream such that Airstream creates specialized Airstream trailers that are then put in these really natural destinations that are hard to build in. So you like Yosemite in California. It's really hard to get the entitlements to build a resort in Yosemite. But Yosemite is fine with having an Airstream village that's really upscale. And so AutoCamp's done that. They now have a location in Cape Cod. They have a location in the Sonoma Valley in the Bay Area. And so the, I really liked what they were doing. This is pre-COVID. All of, this, all of these things are pre-COVID. And um, in COVID, being in nature is, is a big deal. I mean, people want that. So they're doing quite well. So what I look at is I look at a CEO who's young and has a lot of potential. And I look at industries I think are, are really in the early stages of growing, like Airbnb was as a home sharing business. And then I look to see if there's a rapport, you know, and, it, you know, I don't really want to work with a CEO, young CEO who doesn't, who doesn't have that nice mix of humility and hubris. If they're just hubris alone, I don't want to be the modern elder to Travis Kalanick or Adam mm-hmm. Newman, you know, at, at Uber or WeWork, because quite frankly, I don't think they ever thought they needed one. But of course, neither one of them has their job now. <laughs> so they could have probably used the modern elder by their side. So yeah, those are some of the, the the things I think about. I love it. And then you wrote this great blog post the other day. It was basically some of the trends that you're spotting in, in addition to the things you mentioned, but, but one of them is around gathering. I'm a big event fan, festival yes. fan, yes. live music fan. I know you are too. Talk about like how you think gatherings will be redefined in the future. Yeah, you're referring to my blog, which is called Wisdom Well. It's uh, on. It's a daily blog. We have some guest bloggers, but it's mostly my voice, and it's not long because you don't want to like bore people with something that's too long. And so, yes, I wanted to sort of say, here's some trends. Gathering's fascinating to me. I, I'm a founding board member of Burning Man, <laughs> oh, wow. um, the famous festival, and yeah. I have created a lot of festivals myself. And so, what I'm interested in is collective effervescence which is a term that came from Emile Durkheim, a sociologist from 110 years ago, studying religious pilgrimages. And so collective effervescence is when you are in an environment and you sort of, your own sense of self almost evaporates, your ego does, and what comes in its place is this communal joy. And um, I think we are so desperate for that right now. So what we know is that this is a convenient way to actually connect. But what we also know is that our mirror neurons right now are not connecting like they do when we're in person. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, There's a lot of scientific reasons around the brain around that. So I think there's going to be a desperate need for people to gather, especially once it's safe and healthy. So bottom line is I think there's going to be a huge comeback of the gathering industry. What is sad is we don't think of – you think of the airline industry and you know they've been pummeled by the travel – by the covid no one talks about the gathering industry, whether that is literally churches is a gathering industry, part of the gatherings. So is, you know, wedding planning, conventions, festivals, nightclubs, restaurants. That is the gathering industry, but we don't talk about them as an industry. And I think we need to start thinking about that because I think it's a, a fundamental human need that we need to be addressing, especially in a pandemic. Couldn't agree more. So many people in the gathering industry who we know have been so impacted at all the convention visitors bureaus, all the convention centers, all the live event venues, all the festival venues. 
and then bands themselves. You love music. I actually had the absolute amazing honor to join you and your friend, Michael Franti, who's the amazing voice of Life is Better with You song. If you don't know that, you should definitely look it up which was just an amazing virtual gathering that you pulled together. I felt like I was in your living room. Uh, how does music inspire your life's work? You know, I mean, it's interesting. I have a often on again relationship with music. When I'm doing work or I'm writing or things like that, I don't have music on because I, I my concentration, I want, I want to get into this flow and music can get me in a flow that's maybe different. But when I am in a place where I want joyous, a joyous occasion, or I want to feel this deep connection with other people. I love music, whether it's from Spotify or whether it's live, etc. Michael is an award-winning musician who I've who was one of the first guests in my first hotel, The Phoenix, which created 34 years ago. And um, he's now in his mid-50s, and he's frankly in his mid-50s more successful than ever, which is bizarre, you know, for a guy to basically take 30 years to get to the stage. So music for me is is a unifying force in life. It's an inspirational force. It's a form of art that helps take us out of ourselves. And in a live venue, there's nothing like that contagious sense of emotion. You know, our emotions are contagious. And in a a space, in the crucible of being together, that intensity, it's why people still, although not today, go to a movie theater to watch a movie. Not so much. And I think that may, we'll see, we'll see, you know, that may never come back, even though there's an emotionally contagious element to watching a thriller on TV, or, I mean, on a, in a movie theater with everybody else at the same time. I think it's going to make a comeback. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more info and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Catherine Nails, editing and mixing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>